the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. show hasn't been funny in years an snl podcast i am your host nick digilio i'm a podcaster comedy writer and performer graduate of second city saturday night live expert and historian and each week we'll look back at everything snl the best the worst the good the bad the classic the forgotten we'll talk about full seasons and full casts behind the scenes stories and episodes sketches snl's historical significance and much much more Sometimes I'll have guests, sometimes I won't, but with every episode, I will always prove that that tired cliche that you hear all the time, that show hasn't been funny in years, is absolutely wrong. And uh, on this episode, we are going to be talking about subversive SNL. Yes, SNL can get subversive. In the 48 seasons that it's been on, there have been a lot of controversial things, a lot of edgy things. And just by nature of the game, when the show first came on, it was unlike anything on television. Um, You know, at the time, the kind of variety comedy and the kind of sketch comedy that we were watching in the 70s was, you know, Carol Burnett was considered edgy. And it was great, and it had great casts and funny writing and it's classic stuff. But it wasn't really, you know, it just didn't connect with younger people, the rebellious youth, the people of the 70s that were experiencing the end of Vietnam and Watergate and all these things that made people, you know, furious or they wanted to protest or they wanted to be edgy. They wanted to say something dark with their comedy. And, you know, Donnie and Marie weren't doing it on their sketch comedies and the variety shows of, you know, Sonny and Cher and... You know, uh, the, the, the Starlight Vocal Band, yes, they had a variety show in the 70s. And Carol Burnett, which was the leading sketch comedy show. And there was a lot of sketch comedy shows out there, but none of them really hit the younger, edgier, drug-taking, protest-type audience like Saturday Night Live did. And when they first came on for the first few years, it was considered edgy. It was considered subversive. It was considered counterculture. Some of the stuff hasn't aged well. Some of it has. Some of it was truly subversive and radical. And some of those things is what I'm going to be talking about on the podcast uh, right here. This is episode number 35 of That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, and it is titled Subversive SNL. And there was a time, like I said, when SNL was pretty edgy. Um, It was live. It was New York. There was a dangerous vibe. That's what Rosie Schuster said. She was an SNL writer for many years. And sure enough, over the nearly like 50 seasons, there's some generally subversive comedy that's come out of it, as I've mentioned. Uh, some of the outrageous material hasn't aged well. There's a lot of stuff that, by today's standards, would not be considered appropriate. Stuff about uh, you know race and politics and, um, and sexes and all kinds of things that just don't age well in general. Controversial stuff, use of language, use of euphemisms, things like that that apply to everything that now you, know, you have to absolutely... Be careful of what you say and careful of how you say it and what phrases you use and what politics you say. 
uh, how you portray men, women, uh, genders in general, uh, anything, uh, sexuality, all of that stuff, and race, clearly, you have to monitor it, and you have to be careful what you say and what you do in these times. But back in the 70s, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. You could kind of say anything you wanted. There was very little, you know, there was very little punishment for it. There were very little consequences. You could go on TV and you could say things that you would never be able to say on television now. You watch All in the Family now. And by today's standards, that's unacceptable to talk like that. God forbid. So back in those days, you know, your edgy comedy was, you know, Norman Lear was doing that. But live sketch comedy variety shows weren't doing it you know like i mentioned stuff like sunny and Cher and stuff like all the other dumb variety shows and even carol burnett was not doing the kind of stuff that was political or subversive in any way now some of the outrageous material that snl did in the past like dana carvey's ching chang live and like infamously jimmy fallon did blackface imitation of chris rock a couple of times those things did not hold up but there are a batch of things that happened uh on the show that were considered subversive and they hold up. Now, we've talked a little bit about uh, some of these in the past, uh, things that happened on live TV that shocked the world, that didn't know that we didn't know was going to happen. And I've talked about some of these moments on different, uh, on different episodes of the podcast. Like, for instance, Elvis Costello. Uh, you know, one of the aspects that we've talked about on this podcast a lot and that people talk about in general is the fact that Saturday Night Live is live. It is absolutely live, and you don't know what's going to happen. And there is that feel, that edge to it. Where, you know, where anything can happen. I mean, you watched the Academy Awards a couple of years ago. Here's a live show watched by millions and millions and millions of people around the world. And a jerk gets up on stage. The guy who's going to win Best Actor that night and smacks another actor across the face live. So you never know what's going to happen. Again, another live, you know, you never know what's going to happen at live sporting events. You never know what's going to happen at live news events. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. And Saturday Night Live fills that that void as well. Like you never know what's going to happen. One of the things that's covered that I, that we talked about in the past was like Elvis Costello. He was the musical guest and right in the middle of a song, he decided to change the song that they were going to play and play a different song that uh, uh, the SNL producers and Lauren Michaels didn't want them to play. And as a result, uh, Elvis Costello got banned from the show. Lauren Michaels was mad. You can't tell Lauren you're going to do something and then change it live. You can't tell the producers that, they're going to kick you out. So uh, one of the most subversive acts that you could also mention, you know, in this topic is Elvis Costello. We talked about that in an earlier podcast. Also, one of the most subversive sketches that we talked about in an earlier podcast, when my friend Scott Oaken uh, joined me, my old friend Scott Oaken, who was a former artistic director at the Great Factory Theater, where I spent many years as a writer, director, actor, and artistic director. Scott and I have worked together on a million things. And if you go back and check out the episode where Scott Oaken was my, was my guest, uh, we counted down his five favorite moments and five favorite sketches in the history of Saturday Night Live. And one of the sketches that he picked is certainly subversive and certainly holds up today as one of the riskiest, ballsiest, and most subversive things ever done on Saturday Night Live. And that's the classic word association sketch that Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase did. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And um, Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase did this sketch. And uh, it ended, of course, with the it had the N-word mentioned in it. And today, nowadays, of course, you couldn't do that. But we talked about that in Word Association sketch with Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase. Richard Pryor wrote that sketch with, uh, um, he wrote that sketch, uh, you know, brought, brought it in, and, he, and, he, and he, he, had, he, had, he had writers come in and write with him, and they did that sketch. And, um, and it turned out really, really edgy and really, really amazing. 
Um, and so that's one of the other things that still holds up to this day. Then there is the Nora Dunn protesting and boycotting uh, the fact that Andrew Dice Clay hosted an episode. And I covered that entire episode in an earlier um, episode of this podcast where I, I went through the whole episode. The one time that Andrew Dice Clay hosted it, I went through all the sketches and talked about everything that happened behind the scenes. Sinead O'Connor, um, abs- you know, a- actually she boycotted as well and wouldn't appear on the uh, on the episode because of Dice's uh, treatment of women and, and, and because of his material. And Nora Dunn, who ended up being the only cast member from Saturday Night Live to, 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 uh, to protest and not appear. Um, we talked all about that and how that was a subversive act on the part of Nora Dunn and how it was controversial and how it still holds up today. So uh, Nora Dunn, um, you know, protesting the Andrew Dice episode, still holds up, still subversive. Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase doing word association, still holds up. Still subversive. Elvis Costello changing things on the fly. Still holds up. Still subversive. Fear appearing on SNL, um, uh, you know, and and breaking up the stage and busting things up. Still holds up. Still subversive. And of course, Sinead O'Connor ripping up a picture of the Pope on live television in 1992. Still holds up and is still a subversive act. Some of those things still hold up. Now, here are some of the other ones: acts, sketches, things that happened on the show that remain subversive and still keep that edge that SNL had, you know, years ago, that's th- that they still have now. The first person that I'd like to mention in this subversive SNL episode uh, that, we've, uh, that we have not covered already because we covered all those other things that I mentioned is Andy Kaufman. Um, it doesn't get edgier. It doesn't get crazier. It doesn't get riskier. It doesn't get ballsier. And it certainly doesn't get more subversive than Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman... As you know, uh, actor, comedian, performance artist, whatever you want to call him, wrestler, whatever you want to call him. He appeared on, uh, on SNL nine times. Um, they, did a, they actually did a, a thing live on the air, which I covered, uh, when Drew Barrymore hosted. That's another uh, episode of this uh, podcast. You can go back and check where they actually did a live poll where during the show they had uh, the, the audience call in and vote on whether or not they wanted – Andy Kaufman banned from the show for life, like he would never appear again. And uh, this was Dick Ebersol's idea to do this phone in, and as a result, he was indeed banned from the show. He would, you know, and he would uh, he would never appear again. When he first showed up on the show, um, he appeared on the very first episode. He did the Mighty Mouse thing, um, and here's what uh, Rosie Schuster says about the whole thing: We were buzzed. I don't think we had any clue uh, um, what was going to happen. George Carlin later confessed that he was pretty loaded during the whole thing. This was episode one. Andy Kaufman was on that show. There were a lot of featured guests. There wasn't a lot of comedy on that show, but there was this live buzz that we got from the studio audience, and Andy Kaufman was part of that, the very first show. Lauren Michaels said, um, I taught an art school. I taught at an art school in Toronto, and I was teaching uh, improvisations, the conceptual art movement, uh, which was being talked about uh, as being on the edge in the early 70s. Where that and entertainment, where that and entertainment met what Andy Kaufman was doing, and it wasn't just uh, that he lip synced to Mighty Mouse; it was that he only had that was one part of it. Um, he would really mess around. Uh, it was very conceptual. It instantly signaled to the brighter part of the audience that there was some kind of show going on here below the surface, and they weren't going anywhere else. That we weren't going anywhere else on television with it. In the first couple of years, Andy had been so close; uh, uh, he'd been on almost ten times. One night, he even read from The Great Gatsby. And in the beginning, I had Penn & Teller on a few times just to test the DNA of the show. And one of the big tests we had was Andy Kaufman. So bringing Andy Kaufman, this conceptual artist, on 
to, you know, TV at that time was unheard of. The kind of stuff that he was doing, the weird foreign man thing, the singing of uh, Mighty Mouse, the pretending that what was real, that his, that his character was real when it wasn't. The conceptual stuff where you're pulling the wool over the, 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 you know, the eyes of the audience, where they're not in on the joke. That kind of stuff was not big. Uh, Annie Bates, who was a woman who lived with Michael O'Donohue, found uh, Andy Kaufman really eccentric. He said he twitches of his oddball appearances on SNL. He would do the foreign man thing. He would do terrible impressions. He would do meandering jokes. The audience was with him, they think, for long stretches, and then there would be silence. Nobody knew what to do. Would we laugh? Should we not laugh? Uh, In time, Andy Kaufman's brand of anti-humor would become commonplace and even the norm, but it was pretty weird in 1976 and 75 He got actual hate mail challenging women to wrestle on SNL, and he got voted off the show. So here's one of his first appearances. This is from Candace Bergen hosted. Uh, This is from November 8th, 1975, season one, episode four. This is Andy Kaufman's second appearance on SNL, and this is subversive. This is uh, unusual. This is weird. And this is an example of subversive SNL. Andy Kaufman from 1975. Right now, I would like to do for you some imitations. So, first, <laughs> I would like to imitate Archie Bunker. <laughs> you stupid, you, you are so stupid. Everybody's stupid. Uh, get, get out of my chair, meathead. You go in the the thing that get into the kitchen making the food. Uh, every, everybody is stupid. I don't like nobody. It's so stupid. <laughs> Thank you very much. And now, now I would like to imitate Kaufman, and of course he would go on to, uh, you know, fame in the in the normal world of, you know, on Taxi, 
and then he would go on to do his conceptual stuff and piss people off. Um, Andy Kaufman was an amazing, an amazing artist. Again, if you, by the way, if you've not seen the movie that Milos Forman made called Man on the Moon with uh, Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, it's pretty great. There's also a bunch of documentaries made about Andy Kaufman. He's mentioned a lot. There's been books written about him. Um, he's mentioned a lot in the Saturday Night Live book, Live from New York, which you, uh, you should definitely read. But, uh, you know, back in those days, like on November 8th, 1975, I remember watching that and going, well, this guy's hilarious. I don't understand what the hell's happening. My 10-year-old mind was a little wrung by that, but I went along with it. I thought the guy was funny, and then um, every time he came on, it was weirder and stranger. Um, and he remains one of the big, huge, subversive elements of SNL. Um, he was on the show about 10 times, um, and uh, yeah, and it's just as subversive as like, you know, having Richard Pryor uh, and Paul Mooney write, you know, the word association sketch and, you know, bringing in Paul Mooney, people like that, you know, to write for certain episodes and then just like seeing Andy Kaufman at a weird club and having Rosie Schuster bring him in and Lauren Michaels look at him and go, yeah, I think we need to put this on. That's about as far removed from Carol Burnett as you can possibly get. So Andy Kaufman, definitely subversive. Now, another person who stands in the in the in the hallowed halls of subversive uh, SNL is Albert Brooks. Um, Albert Brooks, some people might forget that Albert Brooks got his start, obviously, as a stand up. You might not know this. He started out as a stand up comedian. He was a writer. He wrote for a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, variety shows and sketch shows in the 70s and in the 60s. In the 60s, he wrote. Um, he comes from a comedy family. His father was a famous stand up comedian. His brother was Super Dave Osborne. Um, and, uh, you know, he would go on to do, um, some amazing films as I think you all would know. He would go on to be one of the greatest, uh, comedic directors in the history of film. He's one of the most important filmmakers ever in the, in, 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 in American cinema and one of the funniest and greatest writers of all time. Albert Brooks would go on to do great movies like Real Life and, and Modern Romance and Lost in America and Defending Your Life and Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World and The Muse and, 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 uh, and Mother, and so many more movies. And he would star in other things. I mean, obviously, he was the voice, and he was one of the voices in Finding Nemo, and, and he was one in Finding Dory, and he was in Broadcast News, and so many other ta- Taxi Driver. He's done a ton of films uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera. One of the most important comedic minds in the history of entertainment. One of the greatest stand-ups. Uh, his appearances on The Tonight Show were legendary. Um, and, and, I mean, the concepts that he came up with, he was a very subversive writer, and in 1975, they hired him to do, you know, some films. And uh, they had some conflicts. Albert Brooks, who also claims that he came up with some of the concepts for Saturday Night Live, including, including the structure of the show. Albert Brooks does sort of say, yeah, I kind of came up with the idea for much of what Saturday Night Live is. And I don't doubt that. Um, but he was a pillar of the first season of Saturday Night Live. He did six short films. Um, you know, they, they wanted to hire him as a regular writer and he did write a few things and he wanted to be a cast member and they didn't really want him to be a cast member. So he's like, well, hell with you. I'm just going to make these short films. And, uh, there were some rules that Lauren Michaels wanted Albert Brooks to follow for these short films that he made. And Albert Brooks broke all those rules, but Albert Brooks made six brilliant, unbelievably hilarious and very subversive short films that, uh, were showcased on Saturday Night Live. And then that led him to a feature film career that started with real life, which is kind of an offshoot of the style and the kind of thing that he was doing on SNL. Here's a quick interview uh, that was done reflecting on Albert Brooks's contributions to SNL, the short films that he made, and how weird it was to work with him. Dick Ebersol talks here, Lauren Michaels talks, and Albert Brooks talks. This is from a, uh, an NBC doc, just talking about Albert Brooks's films, his short films, and his involvement with SNL. One day we were out for a ride, and we pulled up to a 
stoplight in L.A., and right next to us in a convertible was Albert Brooks. So I said, well, what if I made you short films? Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. In the following few weeks, you and I are going to spend quite a bit of time together. I'd wanted the films to be three minutes in length, and he thought more like five minutes, and so the first one he handed in, which was about open heart surgery, was 13 minutes long. Here we go. No, 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 no. Okay, all right. I pray it doesn't hurt. I pray it doesn't hurt. What the hell is going on? It doesn't hurt. Why is he awake? Where's the anesthesiologist? I don't know. You're the chief. <laughs> I had had some arguments with Lauren about this film is too long. This is my last film in this series for the Saturday Night Show. I might be back, but that's not important right now. I sort of felt that I was the, you know, first stage of the rocket that went to the moon. I provided a service. I helped to get them off the ground. And about two miles up, I was thrown into the ocean. <laughs> there it is. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, Albert Brooks talking about. <laughs> it's a great way to put it, too. I got thrown out about two miles up, and that's pretty much what happened. And now the pre-taped you know, film segments are commonplace here. You know, They've always been a part of the show, but the first person to ever do it was Albert Brooks. You got your Lonely Island now. You got Please Don't Destroy. So pre-filmed segments are a normal thing. But back in 1975, that was a very odd thing to do. And uh, again, you know, he didn't last very long. He was only on the show for one season. And they got, he got booted right along with the Muppets. And I'm going to do an entire episode, by the way, dedicated to the Muppets and their insane contributions to the first season of Saturday Night Live. And if you don't remember, if you're too young to recall the Muppets <laughs> doing drug humor, sex humor, subversive and dark and twisted shit... Uh, there's going to be an entire episode of this podcast dedicated to what the Muppets did on SNL. But Albert Brooks and the Muppets, gone after the first season. But Albert Brooks obviously would go on to incredible things and, uh, and, and, and make some of the greatest American comedy films, feature films of all time, including Lost in America is one, one of the most important movies of all time. But go back and check out those six films. You can tool around. You can find them. Check Peacock. Check around. Look for Albert Brooks's uh, films, and you'll see them. Now, here's a quick clip. From one of my favorites, this is that he. This is one that he did. One of the last ones that he did for that season he was on, and this is previewing NBC's big television year. So this is like a fall preview of what's coming up. And the first one is a wacky comedy about uh, two girls and a guy. And at that time, you know, it was right before it was actually right before Three's Company hit the airwaves. <laughs> so Albert Brooks was a little ahead of time at this time. But here's a little clip from the NBC year preview that he did. The three of us. The wildest new comedy you've ever seen. On the right are Bob and Kathy. They're married. On the left is Susan, Kathy's best friend. They all live together in fashionable West Los Angeles. This makes for a whole lot of fun, besides making Bob very excited. Well, I think we ought to do something exotic. <laughs> what did you have in mind, darling? Well, I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, what they talk about in the magazines. The only magazines we got around here is TV Guide. <laughs> hey, why don't we join a record club? Come on. Let's ask her in here. I don't want to ask her in here. I went to college with her. Well, you went to college with her. You're both smart. She'll find her way in here in a second. <laughs> 
Why can't she have two eggs like the rest of us? Why do I have to make an odd number of eggs every morning? Why do I even have to make eggs every morning? Why am I doing the cooking? What is my place here? Oh, listen. Before I forget, if it's okay, can I borrow your overnight bag? Sure. It's upstairs. Overnight bag, huh? Where are you going? Why do you care? What do you mean, why do I care? I'm a human being. I have feelings. I'm also very good in bed. Oh, please, Susan. Please, you two. Please. Look, Jane. Everybody's fantasy now becomes a situation comedy. The three of us. It's in the can and waiting. There's more. Specials, the likes of which you've never seen. Specials, like Tuesday Night Nightclub. Every random Tuesday, NBC takes you to a world-famous cabaret to present the finest in underground entertainment. And a new production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, totally acted by children. Do you have your glasses? Yeah, I got my glasses. And your sack ring? And my sack ring. Goodbye, I'm ready. Also, a series of bicentennial programs guaranteed to make you feel 200 years old. And comedian Albert Brooks breaks out of his late-night harness, gets a primetime special, and finally gets a chance at making some big money. It's all right here, and God willing, you're going to like it a lot. That's, um, <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite of the, Albert, of the six Albert Brooks films. Um, there were a couple of other uh, clips that I, uh, that I didn't play out of that, which, which um, were satires of two other TV shows that were going to be on, but I wanted to play The Three of Us, which uh, was about uh, every guy's fantasy <laughs> about having two women. Um, and Albert Brooks, of course, plays the, the, the convoluted begging guy, as he often played in movies. Um, and, uh, you know, as you can tell, it's a very weird audience response to that. I mean, those la- the laughter that you heard during the, the satire of the, of the Three's Company, like sitcom, that was all canned laughter on purpose. Uh, but sometimes the audience didn't know how to how to react to some of these things. Uh, for instance, uh, we'll, we, you'll hear that coming up uh, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes here when I talk about the last very, very subversive thing from 1998 that I'm going to get to, where the audience was like, what? And I love that. I love when there's like a 1250 sketch or a 10 to 1 sketch um, or something that happens on live TV or somebody's doing something very weird in comedy and you don't know quite how to react to it. And then I love when... Years later, we all go back and go, man, that was brilliant. And that's been the case with a lot of stuff. Like when Stefan first appeared, you know, uh, nobody was like, what the hell is this? When Wayne's World first appeared, it was so weird uh, that nobody knew how to react to it. And then, of course, years later, these are commonplace and we love them all. But every once in a while, when you do something risky or something weird or subversive, as we've said here a bunch of times on the show, um, you know, you don't know how the, how the audience is going to respond. So uh, here's something very subversive uh, during a period of time when the show wasn't really successful and wasn't really good. From a guy who doesn't get enough credit, a cast member who does not get enough credit, Terry Sweeney. Yes, I'm going to defend Terry Sweeney. And I know a lot of people who have watched SNL over the years and even the casual viewer don't like Terry Sweeney, that he was limited. And that might be the case. He was the first openly gay cast member in the history of Saturday Night Live. And he did some stuff on that show that I thought was very funny. He was a, a guy who who did improv, but he did a lot of stage work. 
Um, and he wasn't afraid to be openly gay and flamboyant. And this was at a time when it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really accepted to do that, when it could cost you a job or when it could cost you fans or when people would be easily offended. It was at a time when being openly gay just wasn't as accepted as it is now. I mean, and even now it's not accepted as much as it should be. But especially back in the day when Terry Sweeney was on the show, um, he is the first openly gay cast member. He played Nancy Reagan, and I'm specifically talking about his portrayal of Nancy Reagan. His portrayal of Nancy Reagan, he was in drag, which of course was you know not a, not a very common thing then or wasn't really accepted. And he did it, and he did it, you know, he, he was critical of Nancy Reagan. He made fun of her. Um, it was during the AIDS crisis, and he was making statements about that. I think Terry Sweeney was, is an important cast member in the history of SNL, and especially what he did with Nancy Reagan. Um, Al Franken's the guy who actually suggested that Sweeney try the character because he noted that there was a resemblance that Terry Sweeney had to Nancy and to Ron Jr., and it became one of the most polarizing uh, sketches and sketch comedies that they were doing. Um, none of the gender-bending bits that are currently available on SNL's YouTube channel or anything like that uh, are kind of available now. Like, this is really, really stuff that start, that's really hard to find. Um, it's been taken out. So you can't really find any significant sketches or anything without really, really digging you can't find it on Peacock. You won't find it in reruns. A lot of the stuff that Terry Sweeney did that was that was gender bending, and especially his really, really subversive and really, really funny and brutal take on Nancy, it's really, really hard to find. But here is a sketch uh, that I found here, and this is from um, November 9th, nineteen eighty-five, season eleven, episode one. This is the very first episode of that new season, the new season when Lauren came back for the first time, and he got Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Anthony Michael Hall and Randy Quaid and Joan Cusack, and he tried to bring in the younger part and the movie star parts, and it was a pretty disastrous first year back for Lauren. But he brought in Terry Sweeney. Terry did Nancy, and in this sketch, uh, this is when Madonna hosted, and in this sketch, Madonna who was terrible, by the way, uh, as uh, Princess Di. John Lovitz was uh, Prince Charles. Randy Quaid was uh, Ronald Reagan, and Terry Sweeney was Nancy Reagan. And Nancy and Ron were um, welcoming Princess Di and Prince Charles to the White House. So this is from November 9th, 1985, the season premiere, season 11. Madonna was your host. And here is one of the... And I had to dig to find this. I really had to dig through the internet to find this. It's very difficult to find Terry Sweeney as Nancy... Reagan, and uh, you'll hear uh, Randy Quaid doing a, a pretty terrible Ronald Reagan. You will also hear a little bit of Madonna doing a terrible <laughs> Princess Diana, and John Lovitz doing a terrible. So everybody is terrible in this sketch except for Terry Sweeney. And you will also hear it is sweetened by canned laughter because people did not find this funny. But anyway, from 1985, here's Terry Sweeney doing a little bit of Nancy Reagan. He got everything. Oh, scotch for me, thank you. <laughs> Darling? Well, um... I'll have some brandy. What about you, Ronnie? Will you be partying with us tonight, or are you just going to sulk? <laughs> Ron, baby, just blew a press session. No, Nancy, I think I'll just sit back and watch you drink yourself into a stupor. <laughs> it's the sport of presidents. Good one, Ron. Where was the wait a few minutes ago? Well, it is getting rather late, and we'd expect you'd like to be alone. Oh, sit down, sit down, please. Do a little turkey next for your evening. <laughs> Honestly, Nancy, you're revolting. 
Must you drink so much? I have to drink to make you bearable. <laughs> damn much, damn. I had no idea it was this thing, really. No Get idea. down! We're <laughs> just getting started, aren't we, baby? Well, I was uh, sorry not to visit with your children. Are they well? Oh, yes. Ron Jr.'s working in journalism, mm -hmm. and Patty's movie is about to be released. Really? That must be terribly exciting for you. Nancy, Patty's movie is never going to be released. It wasn't any good. Nonsense. Everyone loves it. It's going to be a huge success. No one loves it, Nancy. No one. It was a bad movie, and she was bad in it. You're so virile, Charles. You're so lean and trim. Yes, well, I ride quite a bit, and I play polo. Well, you know, Ronnie over there is the oldest man ever to be elected president. Did you know that? Oh, for God's sakes, Nancy. Oh, yes, it's true. The oldest president ever. Have you no shame? I think I'd better go check on my wife. <laughs> Do you think they'll be back? Oh, who cares? This party's had it. Should we uh, clean up this mess now? Now, let's leave it for the staff. <laughs> so that's uh, that's basically a little piece of it. And you can't really find a lot of it. And then Terry Sweeney would go on to do a one-woman show as Nancy Reagan. And it became one of his one of his regular uh, bits and a character that he did. And at first, when he did it, it wasn't accepted. It was weird. And it was very, very subversive. And it was at a time when it wasn't really cool uh, to make fun of the Reagans, uh, especially Nancy, and uh, especially during the AIDS crisis. Um, which was very interesting. Um, there is an interview that uh, Terry Sweeney did. Again, I think Terry Sweeney is a, is, is, is a much unfairly maligned cast member. He wasn't the greatest cast member of all time, but what he did was important. What he stood for was important, and he did some really quality and very, very risky stuff on the show. Here's a quick interview, uh, a clip of an interview that uh, Terry Sweeney did some years later. Um, they talked a little bit about the Nancy Reagan thing, which uh, uh, you know we focused on here. It's from uh, 2015. Allison Hope Weiner was the uh, interviewer, and it's from Media Mayhem. And this is Terry Sweeney just talking about what it was like to work on SNL during that that time. You got there, you were just writing. How did you make the leap from writer into performer? Did you have to do it's an audition? Well, I took about three years. It was a whole nother regime. I actually had uh, starred in something. My friend, you know, I, friends, I'd gotten into a, a group called the Best Truman Players, and we'd done some wild uh, uh, improvs. And I got a review from the New York Times, a rave review, uh, and comparing me to Lily Tomlin. And so the next version of Saturday Night Live, the next regime, sent uh, talent scouts to see me, to see who this person was. And then I got the job about two weeks later. I uh, auditioned and it was mine, so. And when you said that, when you were actually on there, you said some of the writers like wouldn't write, didn't really want to write for, because you, you were know, openly gay. I don't think they knew what to write. They go like, what do I write for a gay guy? I think that's what they <laughs> ask themselves. <laughs> Instead of what do I write for an actor? So, you know, we were doing, we got Nancy Reagan stuff. I did some drag. I did some female impersonating. I did some funny parts here and there. But their whole thing was not like, I thought, you know, hey, you know, I can host a game show. You know, <laughs> you can do that. I can do 
do a game show host. I can be in a commercial. I can play somebody's husband. A lot of gay guys play somebody's husband for their whole lives. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no. so believe me, I could pull it off. And so, uh, but they they were reticent about that. So they would more tend towards the macho guys in the cast. And so it's something. But you know, women had a hard time on the show too. If you historically you read anything about Saturday Night Live, you know, whether you're women, you're gay, you're black. You, you're kind of sidelined a little bit. You fight for your space on, on the air. Do you think it's different now? I mean, after, I mean, I think that after when Kerry Washington hosted and there was a bit of a, a, a big brouhaha about the lack of African-Americans. What, I mean, do you think the show now, it, it still kind of seems rather white male focused? I think it still leans towards that way, but I think it is better just in general because there's a whole different mood. I mean, we didn't have a black president back then. Uh, we didn't really have a lot of gay shows on, like Modern Family. Uh, even I, that was before Will and Grace and everything. So I think that the mood has shifted. Uh, I think they might have more gay writers. We don't know if there are gay writers. So they probably do. They probably have more black writers. Uh, I think it's shifting some, but slowly. I mean, it just it's just the nature of the beast, but I think it is shifting. And that's Terry Sweeney, um, who I thought, again, like I said, I, I back Terry Sweeney. Um, I think he was one of the most important cast members, the first openly gay cast member. And I think a lot of people give him a lot of undue shit. I do. And his Nancy Reagan was fantastic. So that was a, a, a really fun interview, giving you a little insight on what it looks like to work on SNL as, you know, and being the first openly gay cast member. Okay, the final uh, subversive piece of entertainment here on SNL is very subversive, and it comes from the brilliant mind of Robert Smigel. Robert Smigel, a great actor, also a very funny performer, um, who wrote some incredible stuff. Uh, He wrote uh, Saturday TV Funhouse, all that animated stuff. That was all Smigel. Smigel is most famously known as Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, the Comic Insult Dog, the Insult Comic Dog. Uh, Of course, you know Triumph, his contributions to Conan O'Brien, his contributions to other late-night shows. He's an incredible writer. He uh, wrote a lot of um, amazing scripts for movies and for television. He was one of the superfans in the Chicago Bears, the Bears sketch. He was one of those guys. He's appeared on SNL a lot and has written some of the greatest and most subversive stuff that you could imagine. And he's most famous for, I guess, besides Triumph, but for his Saturday uh, TV funhouse. One of the Saturday TV Funhouse things that he did, um, and he was always known as ballsy. Like, he was always, he would always take risks. I mean, all you have to do is watch any of the 9,000 appearances of Triumph, you know, in any situation, and watch just how crazy and ballsy and edgy he was as Triumph. But he had a very subversive streak to him. He didn't give a shit about authority. He wrote a lot of very controversial stuff. He took on people that, you know, normally you wouldn't take on. He pissed off a lot of the the old guard. He pissed off a lot of the people that were his bosses and producers. He pissed off celebrities by making fun of them. Robert Smigel, I think, is one of the best writers in the history of SNL. And he has written some of the edgiest uh, and funniest and ballsiest things that has ever appeared on the show. Well, one of the things that he did was in uh, 1998. It appeared on the episode, uh, it would be season 23, episode 16. Julianne Moore was the host of Backstreet Boys, were the musical guest. It was on March 14, 1998. So Clinton was in office, and at that time, GE um, uh, ran NBC. They had NBC. And the idea of this sketch, it was called Conspiracy Theory Rock. And, you know, like Schoolhouse Rock, he did satires of that for as part of his Saturday, you know, TV Funhouse. He would do satires of the great, classic, you know, early uh, '70s, mid '70s, late '70s 
schoolhouse rock where it would be songs about I'm just a bill, just a regular bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, all that. He did a few of those parodies, but this one is called Conspiracy Theory Rock. And he really took on uh, uh, General Electric, uh, who, who were the bosses of NBC. And at one point, he was talking about how General Electric was paid. In, in, in this piece that you'll hear, he goes so far as to say that GE gave, gives people cancer. Uh, Rick Ludwig, who is NBC vice president for Late Night, said that the notion that global businesses were running, ruining the world was basically a theme of that piece. Standards tentatively okayed it. We put it on. It aired once. Then it got pulled completely from the repeats. And Smigel said that I remember uh, how upset I was about it being taken out of the re- repeats. Uh, and then we said, Robert, it got on the air. You weren't censored. It got on the first time. It will never be on again. You should be happy that you were able to get it on in the first place. Um, it was, uh, an un- it's an unbelievable sketch. You'll hear it in its entirety. He was basically a one-man shop with the TV Funhouse segments. Um, and they were tasteless. They were satirical. And they were animated, so you get away with a lot of it. Um, and he would piss off Lauren Michaels uh, all the time. Uh, Smigel was, and he was not protect, you know, protected um, because it was animated. And a lot of people were really upset about it. Now, Conspiracy Rock was approved, and it did get on. Um, there, but there is, you know, when season 20, 23 went into reruns, it was gone. Um, and a lot of people just didn't think it was funny. Michael said that uh, he thought uh, Smigel's piece wasn't funny at all, and that was echoed, echoed by the NBC president and General Electric executive Robert Wright, um, who explains that he didn't think it was funny, but also Robert Wright was also one of the guys that got Norm McDonald fired because of so many jokes that he made about O.J. Simpson because those guys were all friends with O.J. And in fact, if you listen closely to this piece, uh, you will hear at the end um, uh, <laughs> a question, a person questioning why Norm Macdonald got fired. And he got fired because of his OJ jokes. So Conspiracy Rock was bold. It cited revelations. It was about corporate media manipulation. Um, and it was a great political satire. Um, and that kind of stuff either gets on SNL or it doesn't. And if it does, it gets booted. So um, it just wasn't funny was the, was the excuse for why it was taken off. But you'll hear it. So this is the entire thing, and this is an animated thing in the style of Schoolhouse Rock. It's called Conspiracy Theory Rock, and this is all of it. Listen very closely because the lyrics are a little bit quick, but this takes on the giant corporations of the day who were running everything, especially media and Saturday Night Live and NBC, and Robert Smigel insanely and very, again, subversively took them on this is as ballsy a comedy statement that has, that has ever been on SNL, and it was pulled from the repeats uh, afterwards. So here it is. This is Conspiracy Theory Rock by Robert Smigel. Schoolroom Rockies, back on the block with Conspiracy Theory Rock. It's a media of belief, a media of belief. The whole media is controlled by a few corporations thanks to deregulation by the FBI. Fox, Westinghouse, and good old GE. They own networks from CBS to CNBC. They can use them to say whatever they please and put down the opinions of anyone who disagrees. Or stuff about PCBs. What are PCBs? They come from electric power plants built by Westinghouse and GE. They can give you lots of cancer that can hurt your body. But on network TV, you rarely hear anything bad about the nuclear industry. Like when Westinghouse was sued for fraud. Which time? When GE 
made defective bolts. It was an unreported crime. Or when it was boycotted for operating nuclear bomb plants just to squeeze a dime. That's a footnote, by the way. A footnote protects you from folks who doubt what you say. Now maybe the voices in my head will go away. But the big shots don't care. They're all sitting pretty thanks to corporate welfare. What's that now? They get billions in subsidies from the government. It's supposed to create jobs, but that's not how it's spent. They use tax and soft money to support congressmen who will over weapons programs again and again. And let them dump toxic waste where the young ones play. I-N-G-E made the bullets that shot JFK. You contribute to this chain every time you buy a product sponsored on this show. That's what NBC doesn't want you to know. Call the next time. Please stand by. That's right. Uh, so if you listen at the end, the Norm, the Norm uh, McDonald thing about the OJ jokes, they went to the same high school. It's, it's, it's all in there, you know, uh, uh, implicating the big corporations uh, for selling bullets. And if you watch the animated thing, it's very, very, it's very, very difficult to find um, this, this one. And it's, and it's been taken from uh, the reruns of that episode, that episode uh, 16 from season 23. Uh, you won't find it there, so you got to dig for it. Um, and if you watch it and listen to it very closely and see the animation, uh, he takes on all the big corporations and rips them to shreds. NBC hated it. People were pissed off at him. I'm surprised he didn't get as fired as Norm Macdonald did. Um, but that's just the, that's just what Robert Smigel does. So uh, conspiracy theory rock, one of the most subversive and edgy things, taking on big corporations and doing it like a kick to the nuts. Great stuff. Really, really great stuff. So that's just some of the uh, subversive stuff that you can find on SNL. Some of it's very difficult to find. Like you won't be able to find uh, the Nancy Reagan uh, impression that, uh, that Terry Sweeney did. It's very difficult to find the conspiracy theory rock out there. It's been taken off of the, uh, off of the repeats. Um, uh, you know, the Albert Brooks films are out there, but you got to dig for them. Andy Kaufman stuff you can find. Um, and, uh, you know, you look for the other things that the Elvis Costello thing is out there. The Richard Pryor, uh, word association thing that Pryor and Paul Mooney wrote. That's out there that you can see, uh, Sinead O'Connor tearing up the picture of the Pope is a little difficult to find, but you can find it. And, uh, SNL still remains a pretty subversive place. You can find out every once in a while. You can see every once in a while when you're watching it. Wow. Shit. That's going to cause a problem and that's going to be edgy. And people are going to be talking about from that, that from days and days and days and days after the show airs. So anyway. Uh, I love it when uh, SNL gets edgy. I love it when it gets crazy and ballsy, and I love it when it gets subversive. And those are just some examples of when SNL got subversive. So there you go. Hey, thank you for checking us out. We're going to do more episodes about really edgy stuff coming up uh, and and much, much more right here on uh, That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. I'm, your, I'm Nick DeGilio, your host. Also, you can check me out on the Radio Misfits uh, Podcast Network with the Nick D Podcast, which is the pop culture entertainment podcast that I host uh, with great guests and movie reviews, and we talk about television and entertainment and pop culture and all kinds of fun stuff. Check us out there. Those new episodes drop every Tuesday and Friday, and this 
Saturday Night Live uh, podcast. New episodes drop on Wednesday. Check out our live streaming at radiomisfits.live. And uh, check us out. And I want to thank uh, Jason Skaggs for all the great music, the opening theme, the closing theme, and any of the themes uh, elsewhere. Ed Silla and everybody at Radio Misfits for doing all the cool things. We want to hear from you. Suggestions for SNL. Questions, comments, contributions. 773-417-6948. Email me at both podcasts, nickdpodcast at gmail.com. And check out radiomisfits.com.live and all that great stuff. And my thanks to you for listening to that show. Hasn't been funny in years. We'll do it again next Wednesday. Please check us out. This has been episode 35, Subversive SNL. See you next time on That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years. Thanks. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>